Gary Hoffman. Yeah. You feel it, baby? Shannon Farron. And I'm not going to brag about how much ass I kicked, but let's just say I kicked every single ass. Gary and Shannon. This was featured on 1994's mixtapes. Every... Every 1994 mixtape. Yes. Uh, Gary and Shannon is Friday, July 12th. Fridays mean a lot of things for us, but let's just, everybody, everybody is already excited for the nine news nuggets you need to know coming up in the one o'clock hour. Great we might way actually, to end our, uh, end our week and begin our weekend. We might actually have real nuggets. Yeah, there was a threat of somebody actually going across the street and getting some nuggets for this, yeah. uh, which would be epic. I mean, I know it would be only us that would have them, but, right. but I feel like if we had them, it would be incredible. I just would up our game. Yes. And dipping sauces. Oh, stop. Now you're getting you're getting a little je- uh, a little too much. Well, um, Alexander Acosta has resigned this morning. The president appearing with Alex Acosta saying, I just want to let you all know this was him, not me, because I'm with him. <laughs> I do not think it is right and fair for this administration's Labor Department to have Epstein as the focus rather than the incredible economy that we have today. Okay, that's. I mean, the the president was unhappy that uh, that uh, Alexander Acosta is going to step down. In so many ways, I just hate what he's saying now because we're going to miss him. I I don't think Alex Acosta really had any other option at this point. No, Wh- whether he was put in a bad position ten years ago by state uh, uh, state prosecutors who didn't charge Jeffrey Epstein hard enough, or it, I mean, I don't know. It's an untenable position for Alex Acosta. We'll have more on this coming up at Swamp Watch. All right. Uh, big guest today. This is going to be an absolute pleasure. Maureen Callahan is joining us. She's on the phone now. She has written a book called American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century. And this book is all about the case of a guy named Israel Keys. Now, we talk a lot about serial killers and true crime on this show, but this was a blind spot for me. I had never heard of this guy until the book, until Maureen's book. Yeah, this was listed as an L.A. Times 7 highly anticipated books for summer reading, and it has arrived, like you said, first week. It hits the New York Times bestseller list. Maureen, congratulations. That's that's great. Thank you so much. Um, And, you know, you said... I, too, a rabid true crime fan. I had never heard of Israel Keys either. Most people have not. And uh, one of the things I, I explore in the book is the, the reasons why most Americans have not heard of this guy. Well, let's give a, a quick breakdown about how, first of all, how his case came onto your radar. I first read about him in uh, 2012. Um, and uh, two things struck me immediately. One, he was a serial killer with an unprecedented modus operandi, one that the FBI's top criminal profilers had never encountered before, and he, in their words, terrified them. And secondly was the um, realization, as I'm, I'm reading this article, that the he had, Israel Keyes had been held in custody on federal charges for nine months 
And the government had kept his very existence secret from the American public, even though his killing spree, he, he killed all over the United States of America. What was his M.O.? How did he operate? Very, as I said, unusual. He uh, was based in Anchorage, Alaska, where he lived with his long-term girlfriend and 10-year-old daughter. Uh, He would buy a one-way plane ticket, fly to a major hub, rent a car, drive thousands of miles. The minute he gets on the plane, by the way, his cell phone is off, the battery is out, he is using only cash, he has gone dark, as he calls it. In that rental car, he drives thousands of miles, he digs up what he has called a kill kit. These are kits he has buried all over the United States. They're still out there. No one knows where. Um, These are five-gallon Home Depot buckets, which he has stashed with guns, ammo, zip ties, other weaponry, cash from bank robberies he's previously committed, and Drano, which he has realized accelerates human decomposition. Within hours, he will find a victim or victims. He likes taking people alone and in pairs. He had no victim profile, which made him even more terrifying. He would hunt and take people in broad daylight or in the middle of the night from their bedrooms. Within hours, torture, rape, kill, move the remains, preferably across state lines, leaving no DNA behind, and then getting back in his rental car and putting thousands of miles between himself and that crime scene. And then go back to Alaska and pretend that none of this happened. And resume his life as a boyfriend, devoted father, and really highly in demand uh, construction worker. Why did the government? Why did the government keep him secret? Well, the ostensible reason is that Keith made several demands once he was arrested in connection with uh, the disappearance of an 18-year-old barista named Samantha Koenig in Anchorage. Uh, and he quickly told them he had, quote, many more stories to tell and that he had been two different people for at least 14 years. One of his demands was he wanted the death penalty and he wanted it fast. Uh, he wanted it fast-tracked, much as the federal government had done for Timothy McVeigh, who he uh, alluded to as a hero of his. Uh, the other uh, ostensible reason was that he was demanding his name be kept out of the media. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't want it until his case resolved in a way that he wanted. He said it was to protect his young daughter, but um, he probably had many of his own reasons, which he declined to share with law enforcement. I think the things that I uncovered in this book, which I spent five years researching and reporting, when I realized the federal government was hiding myriad things, including 13 hours of interrogations with keys that they had never logged anywhere, the psychological evaluation, multiple other case documents. I had to spend another year and $30,000 of my own money in legal fees doing the federal prosecutor in this case. And what I shook loose was uh, documents that went to highly unusual training he got in the United States Army, that he was allowed to enlist in the United States Army despite a highly unusual upbringing uh, where he and all of his siblings were home birthed. He had no birth certificate, no Social Security number. His parents hated the federal government. He didn't exist on paper, yet was somehow allowed to enlist. Um, 
And at a later point in this investigation, something the FBI has never made public, the Israel Keys case was reclassified from serial murder to terrorism. Hmm. Interesting. We're talking to Maureen Callahan. She's an investigative journalist and the author of American Predator, now on the New York Times bestseller list for this summer. It looks to be a great read. Um, Maureen, I assume you d- uh, dive into where this guy came from, what made him into the killer that he was. Yes, and that's that's one of the questions I explore in the book. Are, are, are monsters like this born or made? Um, I spoke to uh, the now uh, late uh, Roy Hazelwood, who's one of the top, the FBI's top minds when it comes to criminal profiling. And he was on the ground floor in the science and the art. He didn't know. He said nobody knows yet. But things about Keyes' background, which um, I really wanted to explore because prior to me writing this book, I couldn't, I couldn't find anything about his background, and I thought that was highly unusual. Why was that such a mystery? So I actually, I, the psych eval, and I actually got to talk to his mother, who had never spoken to a reporter before or since. And what I learned in a nutshell was he and his nine siblings were raised largely up in Colville, Washington, a very remote area in the woods. Again, all home births, all home school. The children never saw a doctor for food. They had to grow it or hunt it. So by nine or 10 years old, Israel, the eldest son, knows how to hunt and shoot and dress game and cook it and feed his family. For the first seven years up there, the children are living in tents while their father builds them a cabin by hand. When that cabin is done, it still has no electricity or plumbing. The Keyes family join a radical white supremacist church called the Ark that also reportedly has anti-Semitic teachings. There is a young Israel Keyes befriends two brothers named Chevy and Shane Kehoe. The Kehoe brothers later go on in the mid-90s to be named one of the FBI's 10 most wanted. When they are arrested following a televised shootout with a cop, One of the brothers implicates the other as a conspirator with Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing. Wow. When Keyes is arrested in Texas, it takes two weeks for some reason to extradite him to Anchorage. But what I also uncovered in in suing the government and getting the FBI's secret internal timeline of Keyes' travels, between Texas and Anchorage, the U.S. Marshals made a pit stop taking Israel Keys to Oklahoma City. To, to rub it in? Why, why would they do that? It's a mystery. They, 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 this is the first time it's ever been reported, so we'll see if, if the FBI or the Department of Justice, you know, care to explain what that, that was about. It seems like they don't want to do much explaining. I mean, you had to go to court to get information in in this case for the book, spending, what, 30 grand of your own cash to have all of those secret interviews released. Yes. And and I actually had my lawyer. The only reason I discovered those interviews existed because they had not been documented as existing anywhere. I had the the benefit of this unprecedented access to these FBI special agents on the case, and I spent a year and a half 
talking to them in depth, visiting them in Anchorage and in Washington State and going over this case in granular detail with them. And I began to put together that they were telling me about conversations that weren't logged anywhere. And I made it a point once we won our case in court, which was just last May, very recently, I had my lawyer repeatedly ask the prosecutor in this case, who I know, uh, are you guys hiding any other interrogations with Keyes? He asked him multiple times, and we have yet to get an answer. It's weird that the individual agents themselves appear to be pretty cooperative with you, but the agency was not. Did you find that? Was that true in general? Yes, I found that a little a little strange. Um, you know, at a certain point, though, I will say even even most of the agents to whom I had been speaking um, in depth who participated in the book because they believed, as I do, that this book could potentially locate and identify more victims of Israel Keys. I mean, he confessed to 11. There are agents who believe it's far more, and I am definitely in that camp. And in the book, I explore several high-profile cold cases and missing persons cases that law enforcement, if not the Bureau, has reason to believe Keyes was responsible for. Um, but even the agents, once they sort of realized that I was beginning other things that even they probably didn't anticipate, they began to stop talking. So then I, I really sort of had to, had to, had to push. Um, you know, I was, I was pushing on both sides of the country. I was pushing here in New York State. I had a lawyer here, and I was pushing up in Anchorage, Alaska. I had a lawyer there because this case is is so vast, and it truly does cover the entire United States. The uh, obviously the murder of uh, Koenig up in. Anchorage was the one sort of thing that was the end of this guy. Can you explain how it is they finally were able to track down Israel Keys? Yes. So when Samantha went missing on February first, two thousand twelve, she had been uh, she had been closing up a coffee kiosk where she worked, which is sort of a roadside shack. They're very popular in Anchorage, and uh, up until Samantha disappeared, uh, no one in the community thought twice about having these young teenage girls work those those alone. It was just part of the culture. Um, and she went missing without a trace. And uh, the case went cold for several weeks uh, until uh, the um, authorities, well, actually, Samantha's boyfriend, via a text message sent from Samantha's own phone, was directed to a popular dog park where a ransom note was posted uh, demanding a, a large sum of money um, and and it also contained a, a Polaroid of Samantha, a, a proof of life photo. She was she was made up. Her hair was braided. She was looking directly at the camera. There was a newspaper in the frame dated February 13th, two weeks after her disappearance. Money goes into that account, and just as quickly, money starts coming out. And the FBI has a tracker on her ATM card. Uh, the suspect eludes law enforcement in Anchorage uh, by minutes several times, and, and, and the agents are beginning to despair. And then one night in March, six weeks later, the card begins pinging, but it's pinging in the lower 48, and it's pinging in New Mexico. And so suddenly you have law enforcement in Anchorage and the Southwest, rousting out of bed and, and all together, everybody's trying to track this ATM card as it's moving through the lower 48. He begins to, uh, 
coalesce his region of travel uh, in Texas. And uh, that's when the Texas Rangers step in. And true to form, these guys take what is the most vague description in a bolo of be on the lookout, looking for a white middle-aged man, no other description, driving <laughs> the most commonly rented car in the United States, find that guy. Wow. And I talk in the book the detailed way in which they went about it, and they got him. I'm surprised that he made that mistake, that he used that card. It seems like everything was so calculated and so planned out with the kill kits buried in various places, that there was so much premeditation that for him to make a mistake like that almost is like wanting to get caught, in my opinion. I agree, and that was one of the great questions I had throughout reporting this book, which was just, and I asked the agents this all the time. What did you think? Did he want to get caught? Was he just getting sloppy? Was he out of control? Um, Most of them didn't think it was a subconscious or conscious desire to get caught that he was in fact that wildly out of control. The, The time between his urges to kill was getting smaller and smaller. And he talked about this, um, you know, it's been reported, uh, you know, the official version of events is that Samantha was Keyes' last victim. Um, and some other news reports will insert the very telling word, Keyes' last known victim. But uh, one of the investigators, in particular, Jeff Bell, talked to me at length about being certain Keyes took at least one other person in Texas right before his arrest. And when I went through cross-referencing the internal timelines, the missing persons that the FBI found on Keyes' computer, and there were hundreds of missing persons. Uh, uh, 44 of those then uh, checked out with a federal database of missing persons called NamUs. And anyway, in cross-referencing all of that, I I came up with a a missing person in Texas, fits the time frame, fits the MO, and I explore that case, and I hope that law enforcement takes another look at that case as well as as the others. Uh, Allow me one gruesome question here, because I I, I know that you, the reviews I've seen of the book laud you for for treating the victims with respect and not making this a lurid read. You're not you're not in it for the for the gore of of clearly the murder of a human being. But was there a specific way that he was killing his victims that would uh, tie some of these unknown cases perhaps to him? Or was he all over the map? That was, that was something I really wanted to be careful of, of not, not glorifying someone like this, a monster, a true aberration. Um, he was not human, I feel. Um, the details of the crimes that I, I do explore in the book are there because it helps illuminate and elucidate an M.O. He was so prideful of, of having this devised of, of, of moving throughout the country and doing what he did. And, and telling the FBI they never figure it out. But when you look at some of the details, they do overlap. Uh, he had a very specific way of, of tying people up before he, he violated them. Um, he had a very specific way he liked to kill people. Um, he had uh, uh, these, these, these details. Um, by the way, they, they overlap with a, a, a famous cold case in Florida, uh, this, this, this predator known as the Boca Killer, 
who was stalking in broad daylight women and their young children. And he, there were five victims in total, two survived, a woman and her toddler son. And the details she gave law enforcement, the way that this guy bound her up, the FBI called as unique as a fingerprint, and they fit exactly what Keyes did. And the sketch that she worked up with the police artist is a dead ringer for Israel Keyes. Wow. And what years was he operating that they know of, and when was the Boca Killer active? The Boca Killer was active in the 2000s. I believe it was the early to mid-2000s. Um, and Jane Doe, as she goes by the lone survivor, her toddler son, you know, she's still out there, and I, I hope she sees the book. Um, he said he began killing, he, he told them, you know, so I've been two different people for 14 years, basically. So they, they went back and they dated that to, he began killing right after he got out of the army, 2000, 2001. His mother told me she believed his first kill was right after he got out of the army. I believe that it was far earlier than that. Um, when he was still living with his family in Colville as a teacher, he had been manifesting all of the textbook signs of a budding serial killer. He told the agents that he, he knew as early as 14 that he was extremely good at sitting still out in the woods for hours on end. And he had the epiphany that it would be very easy for him to take people and kill them. And no one would ever know. There are two cases I explore in the book, two little girls who went missing in Colville, Washington, while he was living there. The first was a little girl who was a Paralympian. She was Colville's most famous resident. She was missing both of her feet. She wore prosthetics. She was last seen in the company of a very tall man. Keyes was extremely tall. By the time he was 14, he looked like a grown man. Incredible. That would have been a very, very, very easy target for a budding serial killer. Not human is a perfect way to describe this guy. The uh, USA Today described Maureen's book, American Predator, as uh, a book that even true crime aficionados might have a hard time stomaching. (laughs) Yeah, wow. Maureen, thank you so much for your time. I know that this takes an incredible amount of work, and uh, we're, we're happy for you. New York Times bestseller, that's pretty great in that first week. Thanks so much to you both for having me. I I really appreciate your time and your great questions. Thank you so much. Well, the feds have brought new sex crime charges against R. Kelly. We'll get into it and what it means for him when we come back. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. This may be one of the most competitive tennis matches we've seen in some time. At Wimbledon right now, there's a semifinal going on between Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer again. And uh, Federer took the first set. Nadal wiped him up in the second one. And uh, Federer leads the third. But this is just some of these rallies have been 20, 21, 22 shots back and forth. These guys are going to be exhausted. This is a semifinal, so whoever wins this, obviously, is going to go into the uh, uh, into the final, I think, on Sunday. But just fantastic tennis going on. Not that you should leave the show and watch tennis or anything. We'll, we'll watch it. What is it with you? Tennis, cricket, 
All, any, these, all these alternative sports. I've said this. Any competitive sport, yeah. as long as it's played well, I will watch it. Little League World Series doesn't it doesn't oh, bother great. me. I mean, because those kids know how to play. Oh, it's exciting. Soccer, cricket, Australian curling? rules. But curling is fantastic as well. Tour de France, as they say in France. That's on right now, and I've been watching that every night. Can we are, oh, they were telling a story. Side note. They were telling us. One of the guys was telling a story was racing in the early 80s, and I don't remember. I think he was talking about uh, Greg LeMond and how he fell behind one one leg because he was sick and ended up, as he said, with an explosive bowel movement in the middle oh. of the stage. Oh, no. And kept racing. And then ended up winning the stage with just... okay. We can imagine. You we know, don't need a like, word picture. Because there's not a lot of protection back in that area. There was an earthquake again this morning, magnitude 4.9, another aftershock. Can we um, stop um, with the ice cream challenge, everybody? What's that? The ice cream challenge is, is a social one? media sensation where, yes, people are going into grocery stores and getting ice cream, opening it, licking the top, and putting the cover back on and putting the ice cream back in the freezer and walking away. Now we've got a woman who has been caught posting on social media uh, her actions inside a doctor's office where she sees a jar full of those tongue depressors, the uh, popsicle stick type yeah. things, and it's got a sign on it that says, please do not touch medical supplies, thank you. And so she takes, she she touches all of them with her hand, and then she takes one out, licks it, and puts it back, and posts this with the caption, don't tell me how to live my life. Well, along the, along the lines of dumb ideas being spread on social media, have you heard of the Area 51 raid that's being planned for September? No. 300,000 people have signed up to physically storm Area 51 in an attempt to get at them aliens. So what was it you said yesterday when we were doing Bible talk about God promising never to flood the earth again after Noah? You know, that's a good... <laughs> I might. It might be time. You're looking time. for a good flood now? It might be time. <laughs> uh, today in Chicago, an indictment was unsealed against your friend Robert R. Kelly facing sex abuse charges brought by the Illinois prosecutors. These are far and above anything that we had seen to this point. The indictment includes charges of racketeering, kidnapping, forced labor, sexual exploitation of a child. And it says that R. Kelly and his managers, his bodyguards, and some of his other employees were picking out women and girls at concerts. We've heard that story before arranging them for to uh, to travel to see R. Kelly. And then they would also set the rules that the women and the girls had to follow. Things like, nobody leaves their room unless R. Kelly gives you permission. you, you got to not... call him daddy as well. Ugh. And you can't look at other men. Now, there is a separate 13-count indictment that was filed in Chicago Federal Court that details all of the efforts to cover up sexually explicit videos of R. Kelly with underage girls. Prosecutors in that case say the defendants were paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, the defendants, I'm sorry, paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to the victim, victims and the witnesses to make sure that they would not cooperate with law enforcement and accused R. Kelly using threats of physical abuse, violence, and blackmail to prevent 
prevent victims from providing evidence to law enforcement. They picked him up last night when he was walking his dog. And now is celebrating his Friday at the High Rise Metropolitan Correctional Center in downtown Chicago. How many years does he face, uh, all told? 7,000. Yeah. I don't know. Something of that nature. If you were to break it down, I mean, the idea of he was arrested in February on 10 counts uh, in Illinois, sexually abusing three girls and a woman, pleaded not guilty to those charges. And then in May, there were 11 more sex-related counts from Cook County. And now we've got the the indictment from the Eastern District of New York and these thirteen in, count indictment in Chicago. Seven thousand sounds about right. Seven thousand years. Now, a publicist for R. Kelly, which who by the way has one of the toughest jobs in the country right now, the publicist for R. Kelly says he is planning to deliver a statement about these latest developments at a news conference sometime in Atlanta, uh, but was not going to comment ahead of time. So. Uh, it, Listen, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Coming up next, Jeffrey Epstein. That story continues. Apparently, he has a steel safe in a room that no one can get into on that orgy island in the Caribbean. Any chance uh, Any chance we could put R. Kelly and Jeffrey Epstein in a cell together and they could just share secrets? In a steel safe that no one can open? Yes. It's a possibility. Hey, KFI and NBC4 committed to helping local homeless students get the supplies they're going to need. You can stop by a Ralph's or a Food for Less. Give a dollar or more for all the information on this program. Visit NBC4.com slash supporting our schools. Give you an update on our Gas News and Brews Headlines and Wines edition when we come back. Shannon. It was a different time. It was a different time. We'll never make another song like this again. You don't want to see that Tootsie Roll? <laughs> you can't say that. I just did. That's objectifying. I'm taking it back. It's time for another Gas News and Brews. This time, however, we're changing it up just a little bit. We're going to call it the Headlines and Wines edition. We're going to be headed out to San Antonio Winery in Los Angeles uh, one week from today. Come on down, grab a drink, grab some lunch, enjoy the show. We'll do the whole thing live from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. next Friday, it's July 19th, at San Antonio Winery there on Lamar Street, right off of uh, right off the off 5 freeway, easy to get to. The original urban winery for Los Angeles. That's what San Antonio Winery is. They're celebrating over 100 years in business. We are going to do the show in the vintage room. You are free, of course, to buy food and drinks from the Madalena restaurant right next door. Bring it back over for the action. Plus, the key is there's going to be tons of free parking out there. Uh, next Friday, San Antonio Winery for our, our News and Brews Headlines and Wines edition. Well-connected child rapist Jeffrey Epstein was charged Monday, as we reported to you by the U.S. Attorney's Office, with sex trafficking of minors. He pleaded not guilty. He faces as many as 45 years in prison if convicted. And more details about his life continue to come out. We talked earlier in the week about his bizarre, massive townhome in Manhattan and what he has inside of it, including a mural depicting a prison scene with him right in the middle of it. <laughs> you weirdo. Well, Orgy Island is another detail of Jeffrey Epstein's life. Some call it Orgy Island. Some call it Pedophile Island, which is probably more appropriate. 
It is a private island of his in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Yeah, it's called Little St. James. I guess he owns another one as well, a second island called Grand St. James. A lot of people call it Little St. or he used to call it Little St. Jeff's. And it's hard to figure out exactly what goes on or his business connection to the island because there is an office. He, he does have an office there, they said, on all of his businesses, at least the ones that are registered to um, to the U.S. Virgin Islands at St. Thomas. They're headquartered in an unmarked office, little nondescript strip mall. And it turns out that a former governor's wife, former governor of the U.S. Virgin Islands, the wife is listed as an employee, although she never shows up for work apparently and just gets paid for being having a name on them you mean there's corruption going on well i would say at the very least there's some shadiness going on. tourists still take boats out to get a glimpse of the island whatever you want to call it it's topped with a blue and white building that resembles a temple a former employee told bloomberg that epstein ferried groups of young women out to his island after they flew to saint thomas and that the crew of groundskeepers had strict orders that Epstein could never catch sight of them. He never wanted to see them. <laughs> nice guy. The, say, there's an unusual aspect of the main residence as well. This should creep everyone out. And if you ever flew on that airplane, uh, it should scare the pants off of you. There is a safe. There's at least one safe. Two security boxes, I guess, and two offices. But... The safe in his personal office, in Jeffrey Epstein's office in particular, is pretty interesting. The level of secrecy around his steel safe in that office suggests it contains much more than just money. And outside of the occasional visit by a housekeeper, no one's allowed in the rooms where the safes are. Now, I assume... Now, if he had a, a thousands of pictures marked young nude girls in his townhome, what <laughs> if, the hell was if, he keeping in the safe? Yeah, if he was dumb enough to write that on his uh, on his CD-ROMs, right. nude, miscellaneous nude pics one, uh, yeah, that safe is, would be a treasure trove, it sounds like, of, uh, of just the most depraved things. Also being reported today is that he had hired private investigators... They say at least three private investigators were working on his behalf, tracking down accusers and possible witnesses to the alleged attacks, paying off the people who would be in cooperation with not talking to law enforcement. Man, it's, he and R. Kelly are doing the exact same thing, it yeah. sounds like. Uh, this, um, the legality of going into that safe seems to be pretty set. I mean, it seems clear that all they need is a search warrant to get into that safe, and then just about any sort of means necessary, they can bust that thing open and find what's, uh, what's in there. I wonder what the rules are there in the Caribbean. Well, it's it's a U.S. territory, so I would assume they're running on pretty much the same stuff that we are in terms of uh, the, you know, the, it's not going to be wildly out of line with what our laws would be anyway. I'm surprised they haven't gotten into that compound yet if they searched his townhome. Maybe there are just more legal loopholes to get through. Um, you know what else is funny is no one quite can put their finger on how it is this guy makes his money. Uh, as much as people are trying to theorize, you know, how he was able to pull off this giant child rape ring, the speculation about what he did to make his millions of dollars 
or billions actually, bankers and money managers have said maybe he's just been friendly with the uber rich and shown them how to cheat on their taxes, or maybe he's been buying and selling currencies. Maybe he got maybe into he's the been cryptocurrency. Buying and selling little girls to the wealthy. To the tune of billions of dollars, I guess. If, well, if here's the part thing. of part of the deal is, um, I will stay quiet about your predilections. I mean, they say he was a money manager. Uh, he he was an investment banker at Bear Stearns in the early '80s. Then founded his own firm, advertising his services with for those who have assets worth more than one billion. Yeah. All right, uh, coming back, we have an unfortunate story from the Antelope Valley. This uh, story in Palmdale, young Noah Quattro remained in his parents' home despite a court order to get him out of there. What the hell is it with L.A. County caseworkers and the Antelope Valley letting these kids die on their watch? I don't know, but we have another one. We'll tell you Noah's story when we come back. To Gary and Shannon. Shannon. Move over therapy dogs. Yeah. We've got a new therapy animal of the day. You want to take a stab at it? Therapy crows. Close. Therapy cows. It's not close. I guess spelling wise. It's an R away. <laughs> uh, at the bottom of the hour, Dean Sharp is going to join us. We've done this story before. It bears repeating. There are ways you can keep yourself safe during an earthquake, and one of the greatest ways to do that is to make sure that your home is safe. Dean's going to join us and talk about ways that we can uh, prepare for, you know, last week's earthquake. We've told, I mean, if it happens again. We've told you about the death of Gabriel Fernandez, just eight years old, 10-year-old Anthony Avalos as well, both little boys in the Antelope Valley that were on the radar, radar of DCFS and yet were able to be, well, essentially killed by the people that were supposed to be looking out for them. Now we have four-year-old Noah Quattro to add to that sad list. Turns out that Noah died on Saturday, and there was a belief originally Noah's parents, Jose and Ursula, called 911 to say that their son had drowned in a pool. But the boy's body had signs of trauma that were not consistent with drowning. Drowning very rarely involves any trauma it's not something that you're not going to bruise yourself drowning and if there were any signs of cuts or bruises or something like that then that would be inconsistent with drowning at the time he was under active supervision by the county's department of children and family services there were at least 13 calls to the child abuse hotline and police from people who said they suspected that children in this home were being abused Mom and dad can't be uh, reached for comment. Uh, every media outlet has tried. They do have a GoFundMe page that they put up. And I'm going to read part of it to you only because I, you know, you choose how you're going to respond to this. Again, it was uh, my family suffered a tragic loss as we mourn. We ask that you please help us honor and lay our loving angel to rest. 
uh, to rest. This fundraiser is for none other than Noah's memorial service and funeral arrangements. I ask that all the negative comments be kept to yourself. Here's what we know about the case. It goes back to 2014 when caseworkers substantiated an allegation that Noah's mother, Ursula, had fractured the skull of a girl related to her. Now, no criminal charges were filed because the DA's office decided there was insufficient evidence. In 2016, two years later, Noah was removed from his parents' home. He lived in foster care for two years before being returned to his parents last year. Just as soon as he was let back in the home, new reports of suspected abuse were filed. And just in February of this year, just a few months ago, a DCFS caseworker noted that Noah appeared lethargic and withdrawn. There were three more referrals in March and April, including a report that little Noah turned up at Olive View UCLA Med Center with bruises on his back. What do we know about dad? Well, doesn't sound like a really nice guy. Yeah, back in May, they were told that Jose had a problem with alcohol. He had kicked his wife and some of their kids while in public, according to the source. Uh, The person who called authority said that when Jose was drinking, he would sometimes become belligerent and tell Noah's mother that he doubted the boy was his biological child. And that all, of course, went to DCFS and was on a an actual phone call the next day that was may 13th the next day a caseworker filed a 26 page request for the court to issue an order allowing her department to remove noah from his parents custody and then a day later a commissioner steve ipson that name is very familiar is he the one who presided over he presided over something it may have been the mccourt divorce anyway a commissioner Steve Ibsen issues a 10-page order granting the request. But yet, Noah stays in the home. Let me throw this in there as well. At about that same time, DC, DCFS had learned of allegations. These are just allegations, but allegations that Noah had been sodomized and had injuries to his rectum. Caseworkers did not return Noah to foster care. You know, the the County Board of Supervisors was supposed to go in to the Department of Children and Family Services and figure out who was screwing up after we already lost two of these little boys from the Antelope Valley. And now we've got a third. And still, it seems like they haven't figured out how to do their damn jobs. How does that happen? How does a... how does a caseworker fill out a 26-page report saying, we got to get this kid out of there, a judge sign off on it, and then... Three months later, the kid's still in the home. That kid should have been removed that same day that the judge's uh, signature was put on paper. The director of DCFS, who, by the way, was brought in to help uh, perpetrate the cleanup, Bobby Cagle, has not commented on this. However, our understanding is that he is expected to appear at a news conference today regarding the immigration and customs enforcement raids that have been planned and I guess in some places have already started for this weekend. Um, Andrew Molenbeek is there. We're going to try to get somebody to hold Bobby Cagle's feet to the fire and answer questions of all of this. You know, I tried to get uh, Catherine Barger on on the show to talk about it. I reached out to her, her chief of staff and said, you know, 
somebody's got to answer questions. And this was after the second little boy died. Yeah, and I they just refused that. to come on. Refused to answer any questions about not going in there and cleaning that thing up. DCFS. Listen, here's here's another thing that, that seems to be consistent in all of these cases. It's not just outside people who are talking about the danger that these parents pose to their own children. It's oftentimes their own families who are saying this. In this case, Noah's maternal great-grandmother, Eva Hernandez, Noah's mom's grandma, said that Noah lived in a number of foster homes during his just his four years of life and that she was one of the people that was approved to care for him. And while she was serving as Noah's foster parent, great-grandma, she would facilitate visits by mom. And even she said she became increasingly concerned about her granddaughter's ability to care for this little boy. And even, listen to this, as a grandma calling DCFS on your own granddaughter and saying, I don't think she's capable of caring for this little boy. There's no reason for this. You know what's even more frustrating to me, I think, than in all of this? When you look at the racial aspect of what's going on here, the three boys who died in the Antelope Valley now, all of them Latino. Now, if this is a little white boy who dies while in foster care, does that light a fire under somebody's butt? Or is it because they're Latino that we can we continue to do these stories? Once every two years, 18 months or so, we get a story about the horrific conditions that exist inside this kid's life. I don't I don't get it. Coming up next, Chris Watts. Chris Watts, we told you about, killed his pregnant wife and their two little girls. There are women visiting him in prison. Oh, and phone calls, voicemails from his mistress have been revealed. She doesn't seem seem stable. She's not on, uh, she's not, both feet are not touching the ground on that one, that's for sure. We'll play those for you when we come back. Gary and Shannon will continue. gonna know when the lyrics are turn on the mic try to catch me singing it's an organ break here little break section gary and shannon friday july 12th 12 30 is when we get into swamp watch a bunch going on i uh there's a few things number one robert Mueller's testimony was postponed for a week uh the uh do you hear about the politician who refused to sit in a truck alone with a female reporter Somebody, I think he's running for governor, if I'm not mistaken. And it's not Mike Pence. Not Mike Pence. Um, but oh, it, yes, I did read that. But in a, in a way, it kind of makes sense in that he's trying to protect himself. Right. So he anyway. doesn't want any sort of allegation right. of wrongdoing by a woman. Because he knows that. I mean, just the whisper of that is enough to scuttle whatever political run he's got. Also, the president getting into this fight between... Nancy Pelosi and some freshman members of Congress. We'll talk about all of that coming up at 1230. Chris Watts is the man who killed his pregnant wife and two little girls. 
He went on... Put their bodies in the oil tanks in yeah, Colorado? Went on local news after when the the wife and the and the little girls, before their bodies were, were discovered when they were just missing, and did interviews, which is uh. so creepy and eerie, talking about how he leaves the light on in the house for them, his family to return, and he misses them so much. Well, we learned after that that he had a mistress. Big surprise there. And that... He was planning a new life with this mistress. Yeah, her name was Nicole Kessinger. And first of all, she knew that he was married. There was no, uh, there was a discussion about when the, when the mom and daughters were missing, what was going on in this guy's private life. There were allegations that he may have been cheating, but nothing that was solid. Now we know, of course, this was truly an affair that was going on. It was, it was a real thing. We have, we have some of, uh, or at least one of the voicemails that she left this guy. Listen to this. You think you you know crazy? And it's unhinged. Uh, oh, I gotta turn it up. That's my fault, Juwan. I had it blocked up. Okay, here we go. Hi. <laughs> okay, that enough right that there. That laugh right that's there. That's enough. Yeah. Like that's it. That's I'm a, out. That's a horror movie. I hang up at that point. Uh, if she does this at all. <laughs> Ugh. It's me. <laughs> I guess just call me back when you have a chance. Bye. Hey. Hi. <laughs> it's me. I miss your face. I was just calling to say hi. Call me back. Uh, okay. You can kill your family for this? I, that may have been what drove him to it, perhaps. I mean, I don't know if he would look at that and say, that's what I want for the rest of my life, is <laughs> that giggling at me in the next morning. He is serving life in prison in Wisconsin. He wrote to his mother and in a recent letter told her that he is a changed man. It was right before, well, it would have been his youngest daughter, Celeste's fourth birthday. He wrote to his mom, I'm still a dad, exclamation point. I'm still a son, exclamation point. No matter what, now I can add servant of God to that mix. He what? has shown me peace, peace, love, and forgiveness, and that's how I live every day. Um, what? There are people who look at this guy and say to themselves, and I'm going to say it's mostly women in this case, and say to themselves, I got to get me a piece of that. And they visit this guy in prison. There's a woman that goes by the name Kate, because yep. she wants to say anonymous, who visits him two to three times a week. Ugh. She says that Chris talks to her about his dead wife, <laughs> how great she was, how much he loved her. She says Chris feels like he had a break in reality, like he snapped, like he was demon possessed. Aha. So you blame the demons. Right. And it's not your fault. There you go. I have spoke to Chris while he's in prison about once a week. I visit him about every two, different two to three weeks. Two different women. When Chris talks to me about Shanann, he talks to me about how great she was and how much he loved her. Chris feels like he had a break in reality. Like, like he snapped. Like he was... Demon possessed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was the demons. It wasn't me. Uh, is that the, is the same demon that was leaving, <laughs> leaving him voicemails in the middle of the night? 
We have our own little demon coming in next to oh, help boy. us get our homes safe for all the earthquakes. Dean Sharp is going to join us to talk about how we can go through our homes, at more your home than mine, and make sure that things stay standing. Let's bolt that stuff down, yo. Gary, and strap it, bolt it, get it all taken care of. Gary and Shannon will continue in a moment. Shannon. Oh man. I know. It takes you back. She is she looks great for 77 years old. <laughs> um Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta is going to resign. Of course, he has been caught up in the Jeffrey Epstein case because he was the US attorney in Florida at the time that Epstein got a sweetheart deal. Uh, and really had to avoid any hard prison time. Spent uh, spent some time in a cushy county jail for 13 months. But uh, he is going to step down as the Secretary of Labor. And we've uh, also been watching and will continue to watch over the weekend Tropical Storm Barry. Threatening New Orleans with torrential rains that will be testing the city's flood defense this weekend. Going to be a... Going to be a long weekend down there in Louisiana. Well, we've got more earthquakes to talk about, don't we? Some aftershocks going on today. Just one this morning, a 4.9 aftershock that hit up near Ridgecrest once again, just after 6 o'clock this morning. Didn't feel a damn thing. Um, There was another 3.1 that followed a couple of minutes later in the same region. We're seeing hundreds of aftershocks from those two earthquakes last week. And uh, many of them very large. It's a good time to have the conversation about your home and is it ready and disaster preparedness and all of that. It's a great opportunity to do that. And we are going to do the same with Dean Sharp to let us know how to make our homes safe. Hello. Hey. Hey. Uh, How's you, it going? We do need to give you credit for calling this one. Yeah. Uh, the, the weekend before, the very end of June, you did a show... That talked about earthquake preparedness. You're our own little yeah. Nostradamus. I'm not sure I actually called it, no, you, but uh, we'll we'll say that it was very you know it was the it was the weekend before it hit. So point taken. I, I take. There's you should not, take credit for I, it. I mean, every year we you know we want to do at least one earthquake prep show for everybody because sure. it's inevitability, right? But there's no earthquake season, so you just have to kind of throw a dartboard at the calendar and say we're doing it. This Saturday. Right. And then it turns out that six days later, gaboom. So where do we start? Where do you want to start? Earthquakes are are some of the... They are, in my opinion, the weirdest natural disasters in the sense that any other kind of natural disaster, like what uh, New Orleans is facing right now with a tropical storm or a hurricane or a tornado, you know, if you're out exposed to it, then uh, that's not a good thing. Right, they're gonna they're gonna take you out. They're gonna hurt you. An earthquake is the only natural disaster of major devastating proportion that, if you are out in the middle of an open field, when like an 8.0 earthquake hits, the most that's gonna happen is maybe you get knocked down and then nothing happens to you. Earthquakes are all about uh, the danger to us is the way they affect the structures that we inhabit. Okay, because it's all about our buildings coming down. It's about freeways dropping, you know, out. It's it's about all of that that kind of stuff, and that's why prep for us is such an important thing. Because we're in these structures when these tumblers hit, and uh, and uh, we 
that's where all the devastating loss of property and loss of life and everything comes from. So they're unique in that sense. Um, when it comes to your home, there's a whole series of things. There's preparing. Uh, there is seismically preparing the house. There's preparing the belongings of your house. There's having yourself ready uh, in a safety way for when it hits. Are you prepared for the aftermath for the next two, three days where you know civilization and infrastructure around you might be offline? And then there's the overall sense of preparing, and that is that I'm preaching constantly, which is please, please get yourself some earthquake coverage on your home because no amount of disaster relief from the government. And a lot of people are leaning, you know, they just assume, well, FEMA will come in. It's because they hear the big numbers. They right. hear that FEMA is going to have billion dollars to Right. To Did come you guys in. see this little, uh, this little uh, chart that I gave you down here at the bottom? This is the average payouts from FEMA. This is what you need to know about FEMA. FEMA does come in, and they do spend a tremendous amount of money during a national uh, uh, natural disaster. But it's spread around. It is spread right. out pretty thin. And FEMA gives out that money in terms of uh, small business loans. So they are loans. FEMA is not going to give you enough money to uh, get your house rebuilt, to get back up on your feet. They they may help you get out of the the difficult situation temporarily that you're in. But uh, if you take a look at some of these great disasters, Superstore and Sandy, Hurricane Katrina, uh, the payouts are in the billions of dollars from FEMA in total, but the average payment, about $8,000. And that is nothing. Which That's will, chump change. It'll bridge the gap for, for food and shelter perhaps for a few exactly, weeks. Exactly, but it has but... nothing to do with rebuilding your home. Right. Also, earthquake insurance is more reasonable than you think it is. It is now. Yes. Ever since the Northridge quake. When the Northridge quake hit in 94, yep. the earth, the insurance companies that had uh, invested in their policies were so inundated that uh, they basically just went belly up. And there was a period of time after the 94 quake where no insurance was being offered whatsoever. And slowly after that, there were small policies, but they were just astronomical. And so if you've been a homeowner in Southern California for any length of time, you probably are carrying around the thought that, yeah, earthquake insurance is just crazy uh, expensive and I can't afford it. But the California Earthquake Authority, the CEA, was was formed specifically to create a, uh, a marketplace for earthquake insurance. And now you can go to the CEA website and you can uh, play with, under the insurance coverage area, you can select uh, your different varies of coverage. You can select the deductible that you want. You slide the slider back and forth, how much property damage you want, how much possession damage. And you will see a readout right there, uh, a calculator for the premiums. And they are amazingly affordable. Average of about $800 a year in premiums, which is not that much when you think of what it's gonna what it's going to do for you. 90% of homeowners don't have quake coverage in California. Yeah, and that's actually getting a little better now. I think we're at about 17% coverage right now. Okay. Right, we come back. I want to talk about some of the basic things, just the super basic things, especially if your home was built uh, before 94. Uh, things to look for that you could do today, walking around, just checking things out uh, that you can hopefully quickly cheaply change the way that your house responds in an earthquake. Absolutely. Okay. Gary and Channel will continue. Dean Sharp has joined us. We're going to talk about uh, the, uh, the earthquake preparedness kit that everybody needs to know when you live here.
Shannon. Top of the hour, we're going to get into all of our trending stories. One of the big ones is that uh, Tropical Storm Barry expected to make landfall as a uh, Category 1 hurricane when it finally makes landfall sometime uh, tomorrow, it's believed, uh, in Louisiana. We'll keep an eye on that for you. Dean Sharp is with us, host of Home here on the weekends on KFI, and we're talking earthquake preparedness when it comes to our homes. So run us down a list of things that we need to have going on. All right, so... First of all, Gary wanted to know before the break what you could actually physically do to the house, if anything. I'm just going to say this. If you're remodeling anything in the house, and just keep this as a general rule, especially if you live in a house that was built in 1980 and before, any any wall that you're opening up from corner to corner, uh, from edge to edge, wall to wall, you're taking the drywall off for whatever reason because you're getting in there to do the plumbing or you're moving it or whatever – Consider losing a half an inch in the room and putting some what we call shear wall, putting plywood or OSB on those studs before you close the wall up. Because any of those components help stiffen the house uh, in both directions and uh, and help it to just be more earthquake proof. That okay. that adding that plywood or uh, uh, OSB will prevent the wall from twisting. Is that the well? It it prevents the wall from. From collapsing or being subject to collapse when it's when it's getting a back and forth lateral motion, we call it a mm. shear wall, right? Because a wall has strength. Uh, the the inbuilt strength of a stud wall is what we call dead load. It's all the weight sitting on top of it, pushing straight down. But earthquakes sometimes they bounce the ground, but but quite often they shake us back and forth. And so if you can imagine all of those sticks, those two by four stud sticks. Uh, and you start pushing on the end of that wall back and forth, there's really nothing about that wall that's going to resist that motion other than the drywall, and drywall isn't designed to do that. Right. So newer homes, we shear wall almost everything, everywhere. And so all I'm saying is if you happen to be remodeling, consider losing a half an inch of your interior room dimension. And that's not expensive. It's n- no, it's not. It's just a few sheets of, uh, of plywood or OSB, and, and across an entire wall it might be $100 uh, to help you stiffen up the house. Now, if you're not tearing into the house, the things that you've got to worry about after an earthquake uh, with our structures are fires, floods from uh, broken water lines, and gas leaks. So you want to shut off the water and the gas and have fire extinguishers. Exactly. Fire extinguishers are super inexpensive. You can get a pair of them for your home for like 30 bucks. Uh, you need to have a wrench, know where it is to turn off the uh, gas meter. Now, it can just be an open-ended adjustable wrench or it can be a wrench specifically made for that little slot on the gas meter. Showed my wife where that was just last week. You should know where the gas where meter is, is right? Yep. And then also, not only the valve, that, which is probably just a hand valve that turns off the water coming into your home, but maybe there's a break in the water line from the street to your house. So you should have a meter key, and I brought that in. We've talked about mm-hmm. that before. It's just this long T-shaped piece of steel. It costs about 18 bucks at the hardware store, and that is uh, going to allow you to turn off the main water meter right out by the curb. Now, there are a couple of things you can do to protect the house so you don't even have to think about these things. You can have installed on your gas meter a seismic shutoff valve, and basically what it is is uh, it's a little box, and up inside this valve, there is a big, heavy steel ball that sits on a little platform. A seismic uh, shutoff gas valve is, de- is designed so that 
a 5.4 magnitude quake or larger knocks the ball off the shelf, it drops down, it plugs the gas line. So it automatically shuts the gas off to the house. And of course, there's a way to very simply restore that by putting the ball up on the... Uh, Where do you get that and who can install it? You can, you can buy these, you can order them online. Uh, if, if you've got decent plumbing skills, you could do it yourself, but you would call a plumber and have them actually do that for because you. Because the gas is tricky. I mean, you, you know, they say you'll smell it uh, if it needs to be turned off, you know. if and, and then, Yeah, and you, you may, you may not. Right. That's and, the thing. and what if you don't? And, right. right. And then uh, they, and have to, they, have to, they have to come out to your house to turn it back on. It's not something you can turn back on. Uh, actually, you can turn it back you on. You can. Yeah, yeah. It's, you can turn the gas on and off at your gas meter huh. all day long. And so you can reset this seismic uh, valve. Uh, so again, it's something that's pretty easy to obtain. It's about 160 bucks. And if you're away, that's the thing. It just shuts the house down and you right. don't have to worry about it. Similarly, you can get uh, a electronic leak detection valve. Uh, companies like Moen and Finn uh, provide these. Uh little more expensive because they're a little more complex about five hundred dollars but uh during a uh, an earthquake they're not going to automatically shut down but if these valves detect any kind of broken pipe or leak in the house they will automatically shut down they will also send you a notice uh on an app on your phone how do it know the difference between a leak and you turning the oven on yeah these are very very wow. smart devices so these are the kinds of things you can do without digging into the house you can add an auto shutoff valve to the water you can add an auto shutoff valve to the gas but generally speaking assuming that you're going to be around home uh get through the quake don't go running anywhere don't run to a doorway all right that's a myth by the way it's a myth that has been propagated through California from one photograph back in the day. Uh, an early California quake, and every newspaper ca uh, carried this photo of a, a adobe house that was leveled except for this big lentil and beam doorway. <laughs> and so from this photograph grew the myth that the safest place to stand in an earthquake is in a doorway. Well, if you live in an unreinforced adobe uh, you know, Pueblo, please go stand in the doorway. But the reality is modern day homes, there's no difference from the wall to the door to the middle of the room. And so you don't have to run. In fact, most of the injuries that occur during a quake people are, moving are people trying to move while the ground is moving under their feet and things are flying around the room. And so if you're next to a giant piece of glass or a yeah, mirror or say. a big heavy piece of furniture, uh, the, the earthquake authorities basically say, you know, Limit your movement to about five to seven feet. Just step far enough away from those dangerous things. Get to the floor. Cover your head. Ride it out. Earthquakes don't last very long. We're talking like 18 to 20 seconds, and it's over. So wherever you think you're going to get, like running into the other room to grab the kids, it's not going to happen. Just stay put and then go deal with it. All right, Dean Sharp, thank you so much for joining us. What's coming up on the program this week? Uh, well, we're going to talk about home security on Saturday, and uh, we're going to talk about the reemergence of designing with houseplants on Sunday. And the fact that houseplants were out for the longest period of time, millennials are bringing them back. Well, this is why you told us to get some houseplants for the I know, office. that's my next goal, because your office is so wonderfully <laughs> so ambiently lit now. Oh, that. Yes. Oh, that part. It's beautifully lit with lamps. Warm. So now we've got to get some uh, green in there. Much warmer. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
<laughs> we'll come back. <laughs> Do all of our trending stories next on Gary and Shannon. Thanks, guys. want a little Christmas in July. I love it. Uh, it's, it just got cold in here. I did get a little chilly. It is It is ridiculous. Today is probably one of the hottest days we've had all year. And my hands are cold. Yeah. Like it's so, it, it gets very cold in here when it gets very hot outside. The, the air conditioning is inversely proportional to the heat. For some reason, when it gets up over 100, the air conditioning in this room gets down somewhere around 52 51 degrees. It's terrifying. Okay. It's terrifying? Uh, it's terrifying. That's a little dramatic. Another Gas News and Brews is coming up a week from today, but this time we're going to do Headlines and Wines version of the Gas News and Brews. We're headed out to San Antonio Winery in Los Angeles. Come on down, grab a drink, grab some lunch, and enjoy the show. We'll be doing everything live from 10 until 2 at San Antonio Winery on Lamar Street in Los Angeles, LA's original urban winery. They're celebrating over 100 years in business. We're going to do the show in the vintage room, but you're free, of course, to go over, and grab some of the lasagna from Madalena Restaurant, whatever it is, bring mm. it back over the action again. Gas News and Brews, Headlines and Wines Edition at San Antonio, uh, San Antonio Winery one week from today. Time for What's Happening. Tropical Storm Barry is getting stronger as it moves west-northwest over the Gulf of Mexico. Sustained winds 65 miles per hour. But it wasn't the wind they were concerned with for the, with this. It is the ridiculous amount of rain that it's going to bring. Uh, totals they expect between 10 and 18 inches with as much as 24 inches possible in some areas by Monday. That's That's too much. That's too much. Just especially for a place like New Orleans. You mentioned this yesterday when we were talking with uh, an ABC reporter about what the preparations are in New Orleans. They do have vast pumping systems because so much of the city of New Orleans is uh, under uh, below sea level. But 24 inches over the course of a few days is uh, too much for those pumps to handle. R. Kelly back in the news because he was arrested on federal child pornography and obstruction of justice charges tied to his behavior in the 90s with five girls. Uh, he is facing a number of charges in various different jurisdictions. The trial has not been set, but judge says an early 2020 date is probably likely. More earthquakes, uh, not just the 4.9 uh, aftershock today. They, they actually upgraded, I guess, from a 4.7. That was the original number. Up to 4.9 happened just after 6 o'clock this morning. Once again, up in the Ridgecrest area, an aftershock to the 7.1 from last Friday and the uh, 6.4 that hit on Thursday. But an earthquake in the Seattle area. They said a couple of earthquakes, as a matter of fact, shook the Puget Sound this morning. A 4.6 magnitude quake in the Three Lakes area. That's uh, just about 40 miles northeast of Seattle. And then a 3.5 aftershock uh, near the city of Monroe, just a little bit closer towards the city. And they were they said it was super early in the morning. Chances are it wasn't enough to, uh, to wake up a whole lot of people because those aren't giant. Plus, we know how people are stoned in Seattle. So. A drug smuggling... Submarine is in the news. A submarine ca carrying 17,000 pounds of cocaine. We're talking a street value of about $232 million. There is dramatic video that shows the crew 
of a Coast Guard cutter leaping onto the submarine and commandeering it. We've got the video, or we tweeted the video earlier, if you want to check it out. It's pretty crazy. Tubaco! Auto Tubaco! He's screaming at them in some other language, but they jump onto the submarine from the boat that they're in. That's uh that's an incredibly dramatic video. You can check it out on the uh on our Twitter feed at Gary and Shannon. And it begs the question, where does all that blow go? What does the Is government what, do with that much cocaine? They burn it. They burn it. Wait, I'm sorry, what would you prefer they do with it? I feel it? like I, it's a missed opportunity for the government to make some money. What would they do with it to make the money? Well, it could be used for medicinal purposes, right? Oh, yeah, because it's 1906. <laughs> and we're still using cocaine a lot for medicinal purposes. I don't know. It just seems like a waste. You have some odd ideas. They also found 933 pounds of marijuana. Um, in That could be this, used for medicinal purposes. Months-long drug operation. People I suppose do that all could. the time. People do that all the time. I'm on marijuana right now, as a matter of fact. High as a kite. <laughs> uh, when we come back, there is a... We've talked before about therapy animals and uh, just the absolute ridiculous nature of how soft people have become that they think they need a parakeet to talk them down. Now, therapy dogs are probably the most common version of therapy animals, but there's a new one that's kind of squeezing its way into the picture here. And once they squeeze their way into the picture, you can't really get them out. Because they're giant, giant animals. Therapy talk. Therapy animal talk when we come back. To Gary and Chad. Gary and Shannon. The uh, bottom of the hour, we're going to get into Swamp Watch. Serena Marshall is going to join us from Capitol Hill on the news that uh, Labor Secretary Alex Acosta has uh, turned in his resignation because of his role in the uh, the sweetheart deal that Jeffrey Epstein got down in Florida. Even though he was spending time in jail and has to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life, everybody pretty is convinced that this was still a sweetheart deal. Even if Alex Acosta came out yesterday and said... He did it because he knew that if the state was to handle the prosecution, that guy never would have been to jail. I would like to introduce you to Mountain Horse Farm. This is a 33-acre bed and breakfast in the Finger Lakes region of New York. Mm -hmm. It's a place for animal-based therapy. Therapy like cow cuddling. Okay. Cow cuddling invites interaction with the farm animals via brushing, petting, or just heartfelt chats with the cows. It's like equine therapy. Except? Except one difference. Horses are... Equine. equine, sorry. Horses are... No, I mean, it's not that... Never mind. I wasn't correct. Horses are standing, but the cows are lying down in the grass. So it allows humans to get even more up close and personal. Like, you, you can spoon the cow. You don't sound convinced that this is therapeutic. No. <laughs> no, I don't. It, it sounds like it smells pretty bad. Were you in the elevator 
the other day there was somebody yes. brought in two little tiny therapy dogs. No. The little white fluffy kind. I thought you meant that the the other day when we got in the elevator and it smelled like a cow. No, 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 no. That was a different time. This this there was a woman who had two therapy dogs on leashes that she brought into the building. I feel like two is too many. It's getting a little selfish, isn't it, at that point? Um, 51-year-old Suzanne Vullers, an accountant-turned-equine therapist, says, can you, see, can you see how quiet she gets? I guess referring to one of the cows. Can you see how quiet she gets? That's what we're looking for, for the person and for the cow. Now... I like her voice. <laughs> when they... They came from the town of Ruver in the Netherlands, or when they were there, they came across Koenuflin. Let me try to see if I can pronounce that again. Koenuflin. Which means cow hugging. Right. In Dutch. Yes. Um, they went back to their homeland two years ago, and in parts of the Netherlands, cow cuddling is offered as part of half-day visits and as part of a larger movement to connect people with country life. No. When's the last time you connected with a cow? I've never connected That's with a cow. That's not true. You told me yesterday. You told me just now that you stopped at McDonald's yesterday. I had chicken. Oh, well, in that case, you didn't connect with a cow. But you connected with a farm animal? I did. I did. Hour-long cow cuddling sessions are priced at $75 per couple for the hour. Now, okay. is that per couple, I, like for the ca- two cows, one person? Or does that mean like you and your wife are going to go hit up this cow at the same time? Trust me. If I suggested to my wife <laughs> yeah. that we go cuddle a cow for therapy, uh-huh. it would be one of the last conversations I had with my wife. Really? Oh, she would have me committed. I don't think that she's as judgmental as you think she is. I think that she might ask a follow-up question like, Gary, why do you feel like you want to go cuddle with a cow? While she's picking up the phone, yes. Each session is overseen by two humans, a therapist, a animal therapist, who can read the animal's moods right. to ensure a safe, positive interaction. Now, have you spent any time around cows? No. I mean, like, looked at them in the face and tried to determine their emotional, you know, place? I've won a, go- a goat milking contest. Mm. Yeah, but you're not what? looking at... Yeah, I won a goat we need milking contest at the Red Bluff Rodeo, I believe it was. Red Bluff Roundup? Red, Red Bluff Roundup, thank yeah. you. Uh, circa 2000, 2001. And have you kept up your goat milking skills? I even have a certificate saying that I won. <laughs> well, I do have a quick guess go around. I want to throw in this because I think this is going to be an important... Uh, it's an important question and will shed some light on uh, on each one of us in terms of what it is that we look for in a therapy animal. And I'll start with Nick, because I'm curious to know if you could choose any animal to be your therapy animal, the one that you would physically cuddle with in order to feel safe and relieved, what would it be? Mountain lion. Okay. If it was docile enough. Right. You'd have to sedate that thing. <laughs> yeah. And I then basically s- snuggle the carcass. Yeah. They're, you know, big and soft. I could see you in a mountain lion Just snuggling. On a couch watching TV. Yeah. All right. Juwan. Teacup t- pig. Oh, that's nice, teacup. actually. My, my daughter told me uh, two days ago that she wants to get a teacup piglet. Um, teacup pig. That's really sweet. Amy. 
Uh, what animal would you use as your therapy animal? You well, have you have to cuddle with it, and it has to calm you. Well, again, it would have to be a docile one because, yeah, I would like take a a, a tiger. Okay. All right. Okay. So you're going along. You're going along that. Nick's uh, line of thinking. A these big, are big cat. These are great visuals to think of everybody with their therapy animal. Oh, yeah. can I revise mine because cheetahs are actually a lot more docile. Okay, but still, it's a big cat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'd going down that train. Go ahead. What would you? I, say? I'd have a koala right here on my hip. I got to tell you some stories about koalas off the air. Low, slow moving, little, easy to little, look at. Little koala like holding it like a baby. Yeah. Right here. I would have a giant female silverback gorilla. <gasps> Very nurturing. You know how loving they can be and nurturing? Sounds like they'd lick you. Lick me? When's the last time you saw a gorilla licking something? I feel like that's what you they do. You were watching like, the wrong do, do you mean nature like when, films. when they groom each other? Yes, they... that's exactly what I meant. Yeah, but he would, she would, she pick, would groom she you. Would groom she, that's fine. That's very that refreshing. That is licking. She would eat the little bugs she's out of your hair. She's not licking. <laughs> licking is grooming. No, she's picking. They pick the bugs off each other. Pick lick. Stick a pickle in it. All right. When we come back, we're going to jump into Swamp Watch, and hopefully we end this conversation before Serena Marshall comes on and thinks we're crazy. Yes, they're licking each other as they groom. Okay. Fine. Well, she can lick me. It's calming. Separated. Gary and Shannon. The president getting a lot of headlines today for weighing in on his labor secretary resigning. We'll go live to Washington to get an update on that, but also going after Paul Ryan and Joe Biden. And look at that. We've got a police chase now through Hawthorne. Nice. Or are they going after that SUV? Looks like the big black SUV. Big black SUV. I'm trying to figure out. Is that the 91? Oh, it's hard to tell. Looks like Chippy's, but Chippy's usually do stay with it. Chippy's. This is a retired LAPD pilot that Channel 9 is. By the way, I think only law enforcement are allowed to call CHP officers chippies. Because I guarantee if you get pulled over today and uh, the officer leans in and they say, "Uh, uh, how are you doing today? And you go, oh, I'm sorry, chippy. I've heard uh, somebody in the law enforcement community refer to them as Caltrans with guns. Oh, yeah. Don't. That is not. Oh, boy. Unless you have had a couple. Oh, boy. They have had a couple. And you're no, even and you're if, at a good time. Even, no, you I good think place. even if you if even if that's the situation, you don't do that. If you're you and I. <laughs> if you all of a sudden be started working for the CHP. No, I just mean like Oh, we be, could say it to each other? No. Oh, I, well, I'm saying just... that we can't say anything like that to a CHP officer knowing what you and I do every day. Got it. Which is come in here and talk out our bums for four hours. Exactly. We'll keep an eye on this uh, pursuit through Hawthorne. Uh, but it's time for Swamp Watch. Drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp of Washington. We're going to have fun doing it. We're all doing it together. Swamp Watch. Well, this has been uh, bubbling up for the last couple of days uh, since the Jeffrey Epstein indictment and arrest that took place last weekend. The current Labor Secretary, Alex Acosta, 
was the U.S. attorney that signed off on a plea deal several years ago with Jeffrey Epstein that allowed him to serve just a few months, well, 13 months technically, in jail and register as a sex offender. But for a lot of people's opinions, uh, it was a very light sentence considering he was accused of raping girls. Serena Marshall joins us from Capitol Hill now all about the president and Alex Acosta's announcement today. Serena. Hey, guys. Yeah, this announcement came as uh, not just uh, it seemed like you said it was bubbling up, but it came as a, pretty much a surprise to most of uh, the president's senior staff who had no idea this was happening until after the president and Acosta walked out of a meeting. We all found out as the president walked out onto the South Lawn and announced it with Acosta standing by his side. He said that it was Acosta's decision to resignate because he thought he was distracting from the administration's work, from the great economy, and the president pushed back on his decision. Yeah, it's an interesting change of events with that press conference that Alex Acosta held, trying to uh, maybe state his case and maybe sway public opinion, and it didn't work. So I guess this was what had to happen. Well, the president, uh, after he was the one, remember, who encouraged Acosta to have that press conference. And and the first reviews we heard from those close to the president were lukewarm. One source said that the president's initial reaction was surprised that Acosta did not say more about Epstein's victims. However, multiple sources insist the president did not want him to leave his position, that he really liked what he was doing as labor secretary. But over the last few days, the two speaking routinely said that Acosta decided it was time to offer the resignation because he felt um, media coverage and calls for that resignation were going to be too much of a distraction for the administration. Where do we go from here? I mean, uh, Alex Acosta is going to disappear into the ether. We're never really going to hear from him again. He's going to join some law firm and probably never have a high-profile job. Um, the the Jeffrey Epstein case itself, though, uh, does th- this doesn't impact that at all. But the timing was rather uh, interesting, considering it came as a as we've learned that nearly a dozen new alleged Epstein victims have come forward. So that was interesting. Like you said, we he's, his resignation goes into effect next Friday. After that, it's unlikely uh, we'll hear much from him again. So how they take the Epstein case in New York is going to be separate from what happens here now. Some kind of uh, odd, I guess you could say, comments from the president about Alex Acosta saying uh, that he went to Harvard and he's a Hispanic, <laughs> which which started trending on Twitter right after the uh, he's a Hispanic quote right there. Well, yeah, he also uh, said that he really thought he wasn't a good labor secretary, but a great one. And so the president definitely a fan of his, uh, but accepting his resignation. Well, it's just a strange, strange time. Serena, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Serena Marshall there with the latest on uh, the official resignation announced today by Alex Acosta, again, Secretary of Labor, who was the U.S. Attorney that signed off on a deal that allowed Jeffrey Epstein some uh, pretty sweet uh, uh, jail accommodations down in Florida several years ago. Remember how we were talking about the headlines, was it yesterday, maybe the day before, that said President Trump backs down on citizenship question for the census? And we said, well, that's not entirely accurate because he's just pursuing a different course of action in trying to demand that the... Is it the Commerce Department? Yeah, the Commerce Department figure out what the citizenship question will be or how to ask it or to facilitate that. The president was pissed off by those headlines. He was very angry when he insisted today that not only did I not back down, I backed up. (laughs) 
Yeah, that was an amazing quote from him. Here it is, uh, speaking to reporters today. Uh, let me turn this up. Jawan, throw this uh, computer around. Very unfriendly oh, From the beginning. Not only didn't I back down, I backed up. Because... Is that a saying? No. Okay. Not only didn't I back down, I backed up. Because anybody else would have given this up a long time ago. The problem is we had three very unfriendly courts. They were judges that weren't exactly uh, in love with this whole thing. And they were wrong. I don't know how he's going to do this. I mean, I saw the announcement yesterday where he said he's basically uh, requiring every federal agency to come through and provide the Commerce Department with numbers that would flesh out, at least be more specific in terms of how it is we determine how many people live in the country illegally. It makes perfect sense to me that he wants to do this. Uh, and I, I also understand that the Supreme Court didn't like the plan. They, like he said, you know, these three courts that have determined that you can't do this this way. I, 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 I don't know. Uh, whatever. I mean, the guy, <laughs> the guy is setting himself up here for what appears to be just an odd victory. I agree with him saying that as a government, we have to figure out how many people live here and should not be here. But the argument back and forth about the courts, you know, he has courts that like him, some that don't like him, some that love the idea, that don't love the idea. Just say that you're you're changing your mind on how it is that you're going to go about doing this. All right, coming up, the president goes after Paul Ryan after uh, some book expert excerpts leak out. Also, we're following this chase northbound 405 in the Inglewood area. This is a large black SUV. It is pretty trafficy out there uh it's <laughs> this suv is not allowed to go or not able to go more than what 20 miles per hour right now 30 yeah. there's a couple black and white chp suvs in tailing him and he's been in and out of the carpool lane we know now it's a domestic violence suspect and wow. this started in placentia He's wanted in Orange County. I, I'm saying he, but I don't know if it's a man or a woman. Uh, from the from the scene, his arms hanging out the window looks like a man, at least uh, based. If you were to make a gender determination solely on left arms, that's a man's left arm. Okay. Just not an expert. I'm just saying that if I were called on to testify, I would say that that was a that's man. That's a risky call anyway. I know. Theory. I know. I shouldn't do that. But yeah, you like you said, he's running into a lot of traffic. We'll come back and see how this goes uh, over the next couple of minutes. Regulators! Mount up! It was a clear black night, a clear white moon. Warmer G was on the streets, trying to consume some skirts for the E, so I could get some phones rolling in my ride, chilling all alone. Just hit the east side of the LBC on a mission trying to find Mr. Warren G. Seen a car full of girls, ain't no need to tweak. All of you search know what's up with 213. Word so for word, by the way. On this one. one and with some brother word for word. So yep. Yeah. How can you not? I don't know. Did you guys, uh, did you and your crew of uh, of lady friends scream that to each other when you'd go out? Regulators! Mount up! Well, I was uh, 14 when this song came out. so no. That wasn't the question. I didn't I ask didn't you how go old out. you were. Okay, got it. Uh, I enjoyed listening to Warren G simply at home we have, on my CD player. We have been watching uh, this apparent uh, chase of a domestic violence suspect is what we're looking at 
It went through uh, Culver City, and it looks like the uh, the person got off at National, got off the 405 at National. It was the latest um, location that we had for him. And again, very slow speeds at this point. Not a whole lot of drastic driving, wild driving. They're stopping at intersections. Uh, so the four or five CHP officers that are behind this suspect in a giant, looks like a big Ford Expedition or Ford Explorer of some kind, uh, they haven't really gone out of their way to stop him. There were a couple of opportunities, it looked like, when there was no traffic. Very slow speeds, say, on the off-ramp to get off the freeway. They didn't bother with a pit maneuver or anything like that. So at this point, it appears to be pretty low tension. Uh, but we will keep an eye on this as it uh, as as this thing continues. There is a new book out. It's called American Carnage, and it was written by Tim Alberta from Politico. And in the book, he writes that Paul Ryan, who, remember, retired from Congress last year, that Paul Ryan couldn't stand the idea of another two years with Trump and saw retirement as the escape hatch. Paul Ryan is quoted saying, I'm telling you, he didn't know anything about government. I wanted to scold him all the time. So the president has hit back and called Paul Ryan. Wait a minute. Do you mean this president? Donald Trump? Yes. Punched back. Calling Paul Ryan a baby and a terrible speaker. (laughs) And he said he didn't know what the hell he was doing. It's funny. Um, They could not stand each other. And we knew that going into it. We knew that Paul Ryan hated Donald Trump. Donald Trump had zero patience for Paul Ryan. And that's why Paul Ryan said, you know what? Screw this politics thing. I'm out and just retired. Uh, He was quoted as saying, I'm telling you, he didn't know anything about government. I wanted to scold him all the time. So uh, he, the president tweeted, he had the majority and blew it away with his poor leadership and bad timing. Never knew how to go after the Dems like they go after us. Couldn't get him out of Congress fast enough. Uh, Paul Ryan, smartly, has not punched back at the punchback. His spokesman just decided to not offer any comment on the president's tweets today. So he said those of us around him really helped him from making bad decisions all the time. We helped him make much better decisions. Again, this is Paul Ryan talking about President Trump which were contrary to kind of what his knee-jerk reaction was. Now I think he's making some of these knee-jerk reactions once again. So there you go. All right, coming up next, we have a big 1 o'clock hour. Of course, we have the nine news nuggets you need to know, so get your dipping sauces ready for that. Also, when we come back after Amy's news, we speak with an investigative journalist by the name of Maureen Callahan. She has written a book that is one of the books of summer, one of the must-reads of summer. It's called American Predator, and it's all about the hunt for who's a guy who's called the most meticulous serial killer of the 21st century. And it's probably somebody you've never even heard about. It's an amazing story and a name that we probably won't recognize. Hey, a reminder that a week from today, we're going to head out to San Antonio Winery for our latest news and brews, the Headlines and Wines edition. You can come out, grab a drink, grab some lunch, enjoy the show. We'll do it live 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. San Antonio Winery on Lamar Street, right off the freeway there. It's easy to get to. San Antonio Winery is L.A.'s original urban winery. They're celebrating over 100 years in business, doing the show uh, live in the Vintage Room 
Go grab some food and drinks right next door at Madalena Restaurant. Bring it over to the action. Tons of free parking, so no excuse to miss it. Again, a Gas News and Brews Headlines and Wines Edition at San Antonio Winery. A week from today, Gary and Shannon will continue. Gary and Shannon, uh, we at the bottom of the hour, of course, going to get into our nine news nuggets you need to know. We told you before, uh, Alexander Acosta out as Secretary of Labor is going to resign because of his connection to the Jeffrey Epstein case. Uh, also, Tropical Storm Barry could, is Israel Keys. Now, we talk a lot about serial killers and true crime on this show, but this was a blind spot for me. I had never heard of this guy yeah. until the book. Until Maureen's book. Yeah, this was listed as an L.A. Times seven highly anticipated books for summer reading. And it has arrived, like you said, first week. It hits the New York Times bestseller list. Maureen, congratulations. That's that's great. Thank you so much. Um, and, you know, you said I, too, a rabid true crime fan. I had never heard of Israel Keys either. Most people have not. And. Uh, one of the things I, I explore in the book is the, the reasons why most Americans have not heard of this guy. Well, let's give a, a quick breakdown about how, first of all, how his case came onto your radar. I first read about him in uh, 2012, um, and uh, two things struck me immediately. One, he was a serial killer with an unprecedented modus operandi one that the FBI's top criminal profilers had never encountered before. And he, in their words, terrified them. And secondly was the um, realization, as I'm, I'm reading this article, that the, he had, Israel Keyes had been held in custody on federal charges for nine months and the government had kept his very existence secret from the American public, even though his killing spree, it, he, he killed all over the United States of America. What was his M.O.? How did he operate? Very, as I said, unusual. He uh, was based in Anchorage, Alaska, where he lived with his long-term girlfriend and 10-year-old daughter. Uh, he would buy a one-way plane ticket fly to a major hub, rent a car, drive thousands of miles. The minute he gets on the plane, by the way, his cell phone is off, the battery is out, he is using only cash, he has gone dark, as he calls it. He, in that rental car, he drives thousands of miles, he digs up what he has called a kill kit. These are kits he has buried all over the United States. They're still out there, no one knows where. Um, these are five-gallon Home Depot buckets, which he has stashed with guns, ammo, zip ties, other weaponry, cash from bank robberies he's previously committed, and Drano, which he has realized accelerates human decomposition. Within hours, he will find a victim or victims. He likes taking people alone and in pairs. He had no victim profile, which made him even more terrifying. He would hunt and take people in broad daylight or in the middle of the night from their bedrooms. Within hours, torture, rape, kill, move the remains, preferably across state lines, leaving no DNA behind, 
and then getting back in his rental car and putting thousands of miles between himself and that crime scene. And then go back to Alaska and pretend that none of this happened. And resume his life as a boyfriend, devoted father, and really highly in demand uh, construction worker. Why did the government? Why did the government keep him secret? Well, the ostensible reason is that he's made several demands once he was arrested in connection with uh, the disappearance of an 18-year-old barista named Samantha Koenig in Anchorage. Uh, and he quickly told them he had, quote, many more stories to tell and that he had been two different people for at least 14 years. One of his demands was he wanted the death penalty and he wanted it fast. Uh, he wanted it fast-tracked, much as the federal government had done for Timothy McVeigh, who he uh, alluded to as a hero of his. Uh, The other uh, ostensible reason was that he was demanding his name be kept out of the media. Uh, He didn't didn't want it until his case resolved in a way that he wanted. He said it was to protect his young daughter, but um, he probably had many of his own reasons, which he declined to share with law enforcement. I think the things that I uncovered in this book, which I spent five years researching and reporting, when I realized the federal government was hiding myriad things, including 13 hours of interrogations with keys that they had never logged anywhere, the psychological evaluation, multiple other case documents. I had to spend another year and $30,000 of my own money in legal fees doing the federal prosecutor in this case. And what I shook loose was uh, documents that went to highly unusual training he got in the United States Army, that he was allowed to enlist in the United States Army despite a highly unusual upbringing uh, where he and all of his siblings were home birthed. He had no birth certificate, no social security number. His parents hated the federal government. He didn't exist on paper, yet was somehow allowed to enlist. Um, And at a later point in this investigation, something the FBI has never made public, the Israel Keys case was reclassified from serial murder to terrorism. Hmm. Interesting. We're talking to Maureen Callahan. She's an investigative journalist and the author of American Predator, now on the New York Times bestseller list for this summer. It looks to be a great read. Um, Maureen, I assume you uh, dive into where this guy came from, what made him into the killer that he was. Yes, and that's that's one of the questions I explore in the book. Are are monsters like this born or made? Um, I spoke to uh, the now uh, late uh, Roy Hazelwood, who's one of the top, the FBI's top minds when it comes to criminal profiling, and he was on the ground floor in the science and the art. He didn't know. He said nobody knows yet. But things about Keyes' background, which um, I really wanted to explore because prior to me writing this book, I couldn't, I couldn't find anything about his background, and I thought that was highly unusual. Why was that such a mystery? So I actually, I, the psych eval, and I actually got to talk to his mother, who had never spoken to a reporter before or since. And what I learned in a nutshell was he and his nine siblings were raised largely up in Colville, Washington, a very remote area in the woods. Again, all home births, all home school. The children never saw a doctor. 
for food, they had to grow it or hunt it. So by nine or 10 years old, Israel, the eldest son, knows how to hunt and shoot and dress game and cook it and feed his family. For the first seven years up there, the children are living in tents while their father builds them a cabin by hand. When that cabin is done, it still has no electricity or plumbing. The Keyes family join a radical white supremacist church called the Ark that also reportedly has anti-Semitic teachings. There is a young Israel Keyes befriends two brothers named Chevy and Shane Kehoe. The Kehoe brothers later go on in the mid-90s to be named one of the FBI's 10 most wanted. When they are arrested following a televised shootout with a cop, one of the brothers implicates the other as a conspirator with Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing. Wow. When Keyes is arrested in Texas, it takes two weeks for some reason to extradite him to Anchorage. But what I also uncovered in, in suing the government and getting the FBI's secret internal timeline of Keyes' travels, between Texas and Anchorage, the U.S. Marshals made a pit stop taking Israel Keys to Oklahoma City. To, to rub it in? What, why would they do that? It's a mystery. They, 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 this is the first time it's ever been reported, so we'll see if, if the FBI or the Department of Justice, you know, care to explain what that, that was about. Hey, Maureen, when we come back, can we talk about how they finally caught up with Israel Keys? We'll do that. Maureen Callahan about her new book, American Predator. This is the story about Israel Keys. Maureen, I'm interested to know, can you tell us how it is they finally caught up with this guy? Yes. So when Samantha went missing on February 1st, 2012, she had been uh, she had been closing up a coffee kiosk where she worked, which is sort of a roadside shack. They're very popular in Anchorage. And uh, up until Samantha disappeared, uh, no one in the community thought twice about having these young teenage girls work those those alone. It was just part of the culture. Um, and she went missing without a trace. And uh, the case went cold for several weeks uh, until uh, the um, authorities, well, actually, Samantha's boyfriend, via a text message sent from Samantha's own phone, was directed to a popular dog park where a ransom note was posted uh, demanding a, a large sum of money um, and and it also contained a, a Polaroid of Samantha, a, a proof of life photo. She was she was made up. Her hair was braided. She was looking directly at the camera. There was a newspaper in the frame dated February 13th, two weeks after her disappearance. Money goes into that account and just as quickly money starts coming out. And the FBI has a tracker on her ATM card. Uh, the suspect eludes law enforcement in Anchorage uh, by minutes several times, and, and, and the agents are beginning to despair. And then one night in March, six weeks later, the card begins pinging, but it's pinging in the lower 48, and it's pinging in New Mexico. And so suddenly you have law enforcement in Anchorage and the Southwest rousting out of bed and and all together everybody's trying to track this ATM card as it's moving through the lower 48. He begins to uh, 
coalesce his region of travel uh, in Texas. And uh, that's when the Texas Rangers step in. And true to form, these guys take what is the most vague description in a bolo of be on the lookout, looking for a white, middle-aged man, no other description, driving <laughs> the most commonly rented car in the United States, find that guy. Wow. And I talk in the book the detailed way in which they went about it, and they got him. I'm surprised that he made that mistake, that he used that card. It seems like everything was so calculated and so planned out with the kill kits buried in various places, that there was so much premeditation that for him to make a mistake like that almost is like wanting to get caught, in my opinion. I agree, and that was one of the great questions I had throughout reporting this book, which was just, and I asked the agents this all the time. What did you think? Did he want to get caught? Was he just getting sloppy? Was he out of control? Um, Most of them didn't think it was a subconscious or conscious desire to get caught, that he was in fact that wildly out of control. The, The time between his urges to kill was getting smaller and smaller. And he talked about this, um, you know, it's been reported, uh, you know, the official version of events is that Samantha was Keyes' last victim. Um, and some other news reports will insert the very telling word, Keyes' last known victim. But uh, one of the investigators in particular, Jeff Bell, talked to me at length about being certain Keyes took at least one other person in Texas right before his arrest. And when I went through cross-referencing the internal timeline, the missing persons that the FBI found on Keyes' computer, and there were hundreds of missing persons. Uh, uh, 44 of those then uh, checked out with a federal database of missing persons called NamUs. And anyway, cross-referencing all of that, I I came up with a a missing person in Texas, fits the time frame, fits the MO, and I explore that case, and I hope that law enforcement takes another look at that case as well as, as the others. Uh, allow me one gruesome question here, because I, I, I know that you, the reviews I've seen of the book laud you for for treating the victims with respect and not making this a lurid read. You're not you're not in it for the for the gore of of clearly the murder of a human being. But was there a specific way that he was killing his victims that would uh, tie some of these unknown cases perhaps to him? Or was he all over the map? That was it. that was something I really wanted to be careful of of not not glorifying someone like this a monster a true aberration. Um, he was not human. I feel um, the details of the crimes that I, I do explore in the book are there because it helps illuminate and elucidate an mo. He was so prideful of of having this devised of of, of moving throughout the country and doing what he did. And, and telling the FBI to never figure it out. But when you look at some of the details, they do overlap. Uh, he had a very specific way of, of tying people up before he, he violated them. Um, he had a very specific way he liked to kill people. Um, he had uh, these, these, these details... Um, by the way, they, they overlap with a, a famous cold case in Florida, uh, this, this, this predator known as the Boca Killer, who, uh, 
who was stalking in broad daylight women and their young children. And he, there were five victims in total, two survived, a woman and her toddler son. And the details she gave law enforcement, the way that this guy bound her up, the FBI called as unique as a fingerprint, and they fit exactly what Keyes did. And the sketch that she worked up with the police artist is a dead ringer for Israel Keyes. Wow. And what years was he operating that they know of, and when was the Boca Killer active? The Boca Killer was active in the 2000s. I believe it was the early to mid-2000s. Um, and Jane Doe, as she goes by the lone survivor, her toddler son, you know, she's still out there, and I, I hope she sees the book. Um, he said he began killing. That he he told them, you know, so I've been two different people for fourteen years, basically. So they they went back and they dated that to. He began killing right after he got out of the army. Two thousand two thousand one. His mother told me she believed his first kill was right after he got out of the army. I believe that it was far earlier than that um, when he was still living with family in Colville as a teacher. He had been manifesting all of the textbook signs of a budding serial killer. He told the agents that he, he knew as early as 14 that he was extremely good at sitting still out in the woods for hours on end. And he had the epiphany that it would be very easy for him to take people and kill them and no one would ever know. There are two cases I explore in the book. Two little girls who went missing in Colville, Washington, while he was living there. The first was a little girl who was a Paralympian. She was Colville's most famous resident. She was missing both of her feet. She wore prosthetics. She was last seen in the company of a very tall man. Keyes was extremely tall. By the time he was 14, he looked like a grown man. Incredible. That would have been a very, very, very easy target for a budding serial killer. Not human is a perfect way to describe this guy. The uh, USA Today described Maureen's book, American Predator, as uh, a book that even true crime aficionados might have a hard time stomaching. (laughs) Yeah, wow. Maureen, thank you so much for your time. I know that this takes an incredible amount of work, and uh, we're, we're happy for you. New York Times bestseller, that's pretty great in that first week. Thanks so much to you both for having me. I I really appreciate your time and your great questions. Thank you so much. Gary and Shannon, and we actually have some fresh nuggets. Oh, my gosh. Not just the nine news nuggets you need to know, but actual nuggets with dipping sauces huge kudos to nick for yeah. walking over to nick filet yeah i mean sorry to chick for nick to nick we're going to chick-fil-a mm. that's what i meant getting us nuggets let's kick this baby off mm. honorable mention not supposed to mention i was gonna mention it when the time was right it's network policy not to mention it. it's been an honor serving with you all didn't i mention it what an honor it is Great and honorable Moses. So today we're holding auditions to become the newest member of Honorable Mention. I mean, it can't always be happy, but this one is just a weird one. There is a uh, a trend throughout London and parts thereof. 
to take a cocktail of drugs known as Calvin Klein. Calvin Klein involves ketamine and cocaine. And it wreaks havoc on the brain's chemical system, can greatly impair overall brain functioning. It's a euphoric high similar to ecstasy. Kids, don't do it. Yeah. And by the way, New York Post, thank you. Thank you, New York Post, for pointing out that Calvin stands for cocaine and that Klein referred to the ketamine. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Couldn't figure that out. Uh, number nine. I did nine plays if a cop's dirty nine times out of ten, his partner's dirty too. And I speak nine languages. I stay up till nine o'clock. Basically everybody at table nine. I feel ready to go another nine in. Niner. Did I catch a niner in there? Were you calling from a walkie-talkie? <laughs> Meow. Disney World may have rabies. Meow. A 60-day rabies alert was issued for an area near its popular Epcot and Hollywood Studios theme parks. I would imagine that they in Florida have similar issues with cats that they do at the Disneyland here, where there are a lot of cats that live on the property. And they're saying that they found a, uh, they, they did a wild animal search. They captured a feral cat, tested for rabies, and bing, bang, boom, kitty cat got the rabies. Hmm. So they, I mean, the thing is, avoid wild animals at uh, at Disney World. Yeah, don't feed them. Don't put. Don't feed yeah. them with your hands. And most importantly, don't let them bite you. No hand to mouth. Yeah. Oh, it is enough. It would be great if you could make a figure eight. A child is born every eight seconds. Listening to eight different bosses drone on about mission statements. Well, our long national nightmare is over, everybody. Lil Wayne is not quitting the Blink-182 tour. Oh, my gosh. My weekend just perked uh, up. Perked up. I mean, I don't know what news is better, that or the fact that we have fresh, real nuggets in front of us with a variety of dipping sauces. Last night, the tour stopped the Jiffy Lube Live venue in Bristol, Virginia. And uh, those in attendance said Lil Wayne only played for like 20 minutes before he left the stage. And they thought, oh, God, that means he's never coming back. Stand down. It's all fine. Everything is just fine. The seventh son of the seventh son. We're on the seven days. With the government. Sector seven. Five, seven. Seven a.m. Seven years of college down the drain. Seven. 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 Seven days. Sometimes your flatulence can out you. Isn't that true? It's a lesson we're learning thanks to a man in Liberty, Missouri. Oh, I just thought about this. The smell in here. We're going to get in trouble from John and Ken. I don't care. Okay. Because the nuggets are that good? Yeah. Authorities say the police officers were able to find a fugitive in Liberty, Missouri after he 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 let a little floated a little air biscuit loud enough to alert the nearby officers. Why did the smell of gas make you think about our nuggets i just thought about the smell and i then i remembered uh, oh we have a couple of sensitive uh, uh i think john and ken just get mad when we eat fruit i think they're okay with fried products <laughs> as long as it smells like fried product in here i got six you got six she got six uh, number six see if there's six more weeks of winter why do you have a picture of me a rabbi and six drunken longshoremen why don't we just stick her in a nursing home closer to us so i don't have to drive six hours drink another six pack number six well, Vermont is one of those states where you can possess a small amount of marijuana for recreational use. You just can't grow it, at least not in public. And that's exactly what they found was at the state house in Montpellier, Vermont, or as my fifth grade teacher used to say, Montpellier. 
They found three dozen <laughs> cannabis plants found growing in the flower beds around the Vermont State House. Turned out to be 34 plants found by officers this week among the cultivated flowers that line the walkway in front of the building. I love that. So it's funny. It's silly. It's just crazy. All right. The rest of your nuggets when we come back. your babies did you lift them up to the sky over a cliff like yeah. that no oh missed opportunity the light touches is yours no but i did have james earl jones speak into their ears okay yeah i don't know what he said to them i just i just said hey would you do me a favor so uh we're in the middle of our nine news nuggets you need to know here's number five for five I have five rules. We begin bombing in five minutes. Five little monkeys. This is the year 5.5. Rain leaning on track five for Anaheim. Do me a favor and lose five pounds immediately. Well, this is exciting. It's going to go very well. More than 250,000 people have signed up to attend a Facebook event planning uh, a raid. There's uh, a raid planned on Area 51 to see them aliens. To see them aliens. Storm Area 51 is title. They can't stop all of us. A group of alien hunters are going to meet at 3 a.m. on September 20th near the top secret U.S. Air Force Base to coordinate a plan of attack. How do you think that's oh, going to go? Hold on a second. Did you you, you said a U.S. Air Force Base, right? Right. Oh, so right. it's a military installation, right. right? Oh, so there are guys with automatic weapons that are patrolling and will probably catch you and cut you down before you set maybe foot on the whole thing? Yes. Is that what's going to happen? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, let's keep going with that one, you geniuses. Four minutes! He's probably on his fourth tranquilizer by now. Commandment number four. There goes the fourth amendment. This isn't the same world you left four years ago, sir. I have no problem with this story. A man from Gloucester, Massachusetts, breaking and entering into a house? Yeah, I mean... In the middle of a day. If I awoke to find a man dressed like a pirate in my house while holding a small dog, I think that'd be pretty damn cool. Okay. Who doesn't like pirates? Well, it's probably not just the pirate thing. It's the, I don't know anybody who likes surprise pirates. Like, a surprise pirate standing over you while you wake up from a nap is not a great idea. Surprise! 79-year-old Herbert Gleason was dressed as a pirate wearing a black bandana, black button-up shirt, black pants. He's 79. He's 79. And he wasn't wearing shoes. Give the man a break. He's lived a lot of life. He just wants to be a pirate in a stranger's home in the middle of the night with his dog. Police in Manchester say they do not believe, do not believe the man was drunk during the incident. Three shall be the number thou shalt count, and the number of the counting shall be three. They were dead within three hours. Three. Security clearance level three. All three of you. Three. I got all three of you guys for the rest of your natural born lives. After about three days, they both start to stink. Three. What was it, Reggie the Alligator? Yes. The Reggie the Alligator was our local alligator caught in a lake here. There is a new one in Chicago. And they're saying there's an alligator in a lake at Humboldt Park Lagoon. And they've called him Chance the Snapper. Get it? I get it. I think that's funny. Reggie, by the way, is at the L.A. Zoo, if you want to go and say hi. Oh, that's great. By the way... What's s- going on, you two? Stay out of the lagoon. One, two. There are two people in this house. 
There's two sons and no women. Two ringy-dingy. Delta needs to be careful with whoever's in charge of their Twitter account because they don't understand jokes. Yeah, there was a guy who took to Twitter and said, excuse me, at Delta, but this is outrageous. I just got sucked through the toilet hole in one of your aircrafts, and I'm now hurtling through the sky. Can I get my money back? This never happens on Southwest. Uh Uh-oh. Delta wrote back one of those friendly tweets. Hello, Drew. I'm sorry to learn of this. Can you provide more details to what occurred? (laughs) And he wrote back, got sucked through the toilet hole. (laughs) Here you go, Lyle. Wrap it up with this one. We're number one. You're a number one. We're number one, Ben. That's all that counts. I decided to look out for number one. Are you the number one? <laughs> Row number one. Number one. Uh, number one. I mean, if you're going to admit all this stuff, I think the police officers would prefer you do it up front, right? Yeah, I, I think so. Guy in Guthrie, Oklahoma gets pulled over. Stephen Jennings, um, cops, going to search his car. They noticed the car tags were expired, so... They pull him over and they say, uh, hey, how's it going? He goes, well, first of all, I want to let you know there is a gun in the car. The uh, woman that was with him was charged with possession of a firearm. Um, they also found that the car had been reported stolen. They also found a bottle of Kentucky Deluxe whiskey. Oh, look, by the way, I would go out on a limb and say that if you're drinking Kentucky Deluxe whiskey in, in Guthrie, Oklahoma, it's not really that good. How deluxe is Kentucky Deluxe whiskey? I don't know. How deluxe are you if you have to call yourself deluxe? deluxe with an E, of course. Uh, oh, d- you didn't mention the rattlesnake that they found as well. Well, you know what goes well with whiskey, and that's a rattlesnake. Oh, and wait. One more thing. Along with the gun, the whiskey, the rattlesnake, they found a canister of radioactive powdered uranium. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't exactly explain where they got the uranium from, um, and they're trying to figure out why somebody would have it. Who knows? Don't forget News and Brews. Next weekend, we're doing San Antonio Wineries Headlines and Wines, our latest version of all of that. One week from today, 10 till 2 at San Antonio Winery right there in Los Angeles. All right. John and Ken coming up next. Have a great weekend. See you on Monday. Blessings. Stay, stay dry. Blessings. Stay dry.